Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we looked at the reign of the last Ashantahene of an independent Ashanti kingdom. After ending the Ashanti Civil War and investing in new industries to improve the national economy, Ashantahene Prempa I got caught up in the politics of the European scramble for Africa. The British, trying to prevent the French from controlling northern Ghana and the rapidly growing cocoa industry, invaded Ashantiman, reduced the Ashanti kingdom to a British protectorate, and deported Prempa to the distant Seychelles Islands. However, because the Ashantahene had refused to actively resist the British invasion, the British governor was never given the excuse he wanted to waylace to the Ashanti lands and humiliate its people. So, despite the kingdom being gone from the map, the Ashanti nation was still mostly intact. In this episode, the penultimate chapter of our season on the Ashanti Empire, the British governor will try again to strike one final blow to destroy not only the Ashanti state, but the institution of the Golden Stool and Ashanti national unity altogether. Season 3, Episode 29, Ya Ashantewa. As the 19th century turned to the 20th, Ajantaman was stuck in a state of paralyzed malaise. The unusual circumstances behind the imposition of British rule had meant that much of the Ashanti government remained intact. Omanhenes continued to govern their lands as indirect British administrators, and the Ashantiman Shamu continued to convene on rare occasions. At one point, the British even ordered that the Ashanti legislature was to elect a group of three men to serve on a provisional council to govern Ashantiman on behalf of the colonial authorities. After these elections took place, an old member of Prempa's government, the finance minister Opokomensa, emerged a victor. Opokomensa, a man who will feature prominently for the remainder of this season, was a supporter of continued Ashanti independence, but thought that cooperation with what would surely be a short and temporary British occupation was the most practical way to move forward with this goal. So, with Oman Hene's ruling the countryside, and the Ashanti finance minister ruling Komasi, if you squinted, it would be easy to forget that the Ashanti were now living under British rule. That is, if you squinted hard enough to ignore Fort Komasi. Constructed on the ruins of Osebonso's old fort, the Abandan, Fort Komasi was an imposing reminder of the Ashanti's recent subjugation. The fort was built in 1897 with porters carrying the materials north from Cape Coast. British telegraph lines allowed the fort to communicate quickly with the British colonial government in the Gold Coast, while a permanent garrison of soldiers kept an eye on the city. Komasi itself, meanwhile, was at an all-time valley in terms of size and importance. Remember, back in the days of Osebonso, the city hosted an impressive population of around 100,000 people, and had peaked with a population estimated to be just under 150,000 by the death of Kwakojoa. However, in the 25 years since the end of the Third Anglo-Ashanti War, the city had fallen off a cliff. The British sack and near-total destruction of the city, followed by decades of bloody civil war and unrest, combined to seriously stifle the economic, cultural, and political importance of the city. As a result, its population declined substantially. The 1896 invasion was the final straw that broke the city of Komasi. While the city's political importance had declined a lot already, the last thing Komasi had going for it was that it was the home of the Ashantihene, and therefore the home of his many royal courtiers and bureaucrats. With Prempa now in exile, this last bit of residual political importance subsided, 
and the former Nsafohene population largely left with it. The population of the husk of a city that the British patrolled in 1897 consisted of a paltry 3,000 people, barely 2% of the city's peak population. While for its first year, the British occupation of Ashantiman was relatively light, this all started to change in the year 1897. That year, a British company decided to begin taking advantage of the new occupied territories. This company was the Ashanti Gold Company, or as I'll call it from now on, the AGC. The AGC was not new, and had been founded 15 years prior as a British private company that worked in a limited capacity in Adansi, under the supervision of agents of the various kings of Bekwai throughout this period. However, with the end of Ashanti hegemony in the area, the AGC was now free to push forward and expand its operations without supervision. The owner of the Adansi Mines, a Fonti engineer named Joseph Ellis, sought to introduce more industrialized methods to his mining operations. The AGC invested a great deal of money in sending machinery and transportation infrastructure to the Adansi Mines. Despite his early investments, Ellis would not reap much from this enterprise as the AGC was soon bought out by British shareholders in a hostile takeover. These new shareholders were eager to dominate what was clearly the soon-to-be-rejuvenated mining industry in the soon-to-be-aptly-named Gold Coast. The newfound investment in the success of the AGC changed everything about British colonial policy in Ghana. While previous administrations had been content to maintain the lackluster infrastructure in southern Ghana, the AGC needed new, clear paths to Cape Coast so they could import tools and materials and export minerals. This also necessitated the enforcement of anti-banditry legislation, and, perhaps most importantly, the provision of a consistent stream of colonial labor. The brief status quo of allowing underfunded local Omanhenes to mostly govern themselves under largely theoretical British rule just wasn't going to work anymore. Starting in early 1897, the Ashanti were ruled as a crown colony, indicating that this brief and temporary military occupation might prove much longer than expected. To enforce the new status quo, the British turned to their old ace in the hole, the reliable bad cops, the Hausa mercenaries. If you remember back to our episode on the Third Anglo-Ashanti War, the British colonial authority in Ghana loved using mercenaries recruited from northern Nigeria in West African colonial conflicts. Not only were they relatively close geographically, allowing for easy recruitment, but they were also, in the pseudo-scientific racialist view of the time, supposedly more adapted for the hot tropical climate of West Africa. But most importantly, they could be used as a sort of proxy for the worst of colonial abuses. British pay incentives for the House of Mercenaries, who were now employed under the title of policemen, provided monetary bonuses for the number of arrests and even the killing of criminals. This pay structure, in turn, incentivized unprovoked arrests and brutal police violence. Since the atrocities were committed by Hausa and not directly by British soldiers, the colonial authority not only shielded itself from criticism on the local level, but also ideologically justified its colonial mission. The colonial office spun events as basically, of course we need to keep colonizing West Africa, the natives are obviously not civilized enough to govern themselves. I mean, just look at the brutality of the Hausa. Through this narrative, the British colonial office could twist the brutality of military occupation, one of the most apparent rallying cries for anti-colonial ideology, into a justification for colonial conquest. So, what were some of these atrocities? Well, before we get into that, it's always necessary to add the disclaimer. 
if you listen with kids, or if you're just not comfortable with hearing about violence, including sexual violence, it's a good time to skip forward for about a minute. In the least severe examples of abuse of authority, House of Policemen were generally operated like an early modern army occupying the Gold Coast. They, quote-unquote, lived off the land, which is to say, in reality, that they stole food from local farmsteads in the areas they patrolled. This might not sound like that big of a deal, but to a subsistence farmstead, an extra mouth to feed could be the difference between living and starvation. In more severe cases, many House of Policemen in British service were credibly accused of extrajudicial arrests, gang rape of Ashanti civilian women, and, more generally, murdering Ashanti who were not complicit in their style of rule. Anything from refusing to sufficiently genuflect yourself before a police officer to refusing to provide bribes for everyday services could land you in an early grave. Meanwhile, British administrators and missionaries began their efforts to try to undermine various aspects of Ashanti culture and social structures. Missionaries found great success converting Ashanti to Christianity. Not only did conversion promise economic and social advantages under British rule, but it was also a religion that could be easily syncretized with elements of Akon theology. Concepts like prayer, monotheism, lesser deities that assist the one true God, sin, and witchcraft were all Christian concepts that, with a little bit of tweaking, each had respective analogs in Akom, and were therefore familiar concepts to the Ashanti. However, the one element of Akom that truly lacked any sort of analog in Christianity was the basis of many Akan social systems. Ancestor worship. From the duty of the Ashantahene to protect the honor of the ancestors, to belief that the souls of the ancestors inhabited familial stools, the significance of honoring and worshiping the ancestors permeated every element of Akan society. Christian missionaries and Ashantiman, on the other hand, had, let's say, varying views of the practice. Traditionally, missions had predominantly viewed ancestor worship as a harmless cultural exercise, something that wasn't worth undermining the trust of local people to try and challenge. By 1897, however, many missionaries felt empowered to begin declaring the practice idolatrous, and as a result, actively pushing to undermine the Ashanti belief in ancestor worship. So, Christianity, once something that could pretty easily coexist alongside Akan social structures, was now becoming an active threat. Now, the British conquest of Ashantiman did herald one positive development, the final abolition of slavery in the region. Slavery in Ashantiman had been steadily declining in its scale since the days of Mensabonso. The lack of recent successful foreign conquests reduced the number of enslaved war prisoners, while the economic decline of the region meant that Ashanti elites had little capital to purchase enslaved labor through northern markets. More importantly, the failure of Mensabonso's debt relief program had provided a cheaper, more plentiful form of unfree labor in the form of the rising population of debt peon laborers. Despite this decline, the practice of slavery remained legal in Ashantiman until the end of the empire. With the final British invasion, the enslaved people were liberated from their official servitude. Though, of course, things were never so simply optimistic. Domum, or enslaved people of foreign origin captured in war, were often overtly discriminated against even after attaining freedom. Many continued to live in poverty, while others were forced to migrate out of Ashantiman. Many former Domum moved south, while many others moved to the colony that had been founded as a home for emancipated slaves, Sierra Leone. For the majority of enslaved people in Ashantiman, who bore the social status of a donko, 
they were deeply entwined into the family structure of their owners. Remember, the Ashanti philosophy that justified slavery framed Odonko and their children as a subservient position within the owning family. So, this was the position that most Odonko assumed. Under these pretexts, many wealthy Ashanti families continued the practice of domestic slavery, with ostensibly former Odonko, now recognized as aunts and uncles, continuing to perform unpaid, unfree work for the family. While certain British observers decried the de facto continuity of slavery in Ashantiman, the majority of the colonial authority tolerated it. Former Odonko who resisted the social and economic pressure to assimilate into their owner's family often found themselves in an equally precarious position. Social stigma and economic decline ensured that most former Odonko were unemployed upon their liberation. The British solution to unemployment in Shantiman was a system of conscript labor, in which the colonial police forced unemployed Ashanti to work on infrastructure projects like the construction of railways or repairing damaged roads. Pay was minimal, if even existent, and participation was not optional. In all but legal technicality, this system of conscript labor was modern slavery. And, as a short aside, it's worth noting that both of these practices would continue well into the 1940s. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Many Ashanti elites were highly resentful of the system of conscript labor as it drained local economies and farmsteads of workers. The system would motivate some of the earliest militant resentment against British rule. Between the increasingly aggressive efforts at Christianization, the shakeup of labor practices, and the brutal occupation of Ashantiman by what were essentially foreign mercenaries, resentment against the British authorities began to heat to a fever pitch. The spark that would light the powder keg of Ashantiman, however, wouldn't arrive until the next year. In December of 1897, a new colonial governor was appointed for the Gold Coast, and in the early winter of 1898, he arrived in Cape Coast and made his way north to Kumasi. His name was Frederick Mitchell Hodgson, and he would go down in history as the man most responsible for the outbreak of the final Anglo-Ashanti War. Hodgson was a fairly inexperienced newbie to the colonial administration game. He had worked as a postmaster and military officer in the British colony of Guyana in the past, but this was his first time ever assuming a job of colonial governorship. For such an inexperienced administrator, governing Ashantiman was an incredibly difficult job. He was given the unenviable task of breaking the autonomy of a recently conquered region, and turning the most feared British enemy in West Africa into cowed, pacified subjects. Certainly, this would be a difficult job, but Hodgson had a strategy in mind, and it all revolved around the Golden Stool. The British had long been aware of the significance of the Golden Stool to Ashanti governing institutions. Past British visitors to Ashantiman, like T.E. Bowditch, had noted the significance of the artifact to Ashanti governmental and religious institutions all the way back in 1819. 
However, it was the recent Ashanti civil wars, with their back-and-forth fighting for control over the Golden Stool, that reinforced British knowledge of the artifact's significance. Even before Hodgson's arrival, the previous British administration had sought to capture the Golden Stool during the initial occupation of Ashantiman. They planned to use the stool to appoint a new Ashantihene, replacing the absentee Prempa with his old rival Achwereboa, who they believed would act as an easily controlled and manipulated puppet leader of Ashantiman. But when word arrived in Kumasi of the British intent to seize the sacred object, the Ashanti government quickly scrambled together to hide the artifact. Under secret orders from Opokumensa, a coalition of seven royal bureaucrats and palace guards sprang into action. Just a few hours before the British arrival in Kumasi, they moved the stool to a new, hidden location. When the British force arrived in the city and entered the royal residence, the golden stool was already gone, and they were met only by a group of Ashanti palace guards who shrugged and said that they had no idea where it went. Patrols of British soldiers, as well as Ashanti collaborators aligned with Achuereboa, briefly searched for the stool in late 1896, but gave up after they made little progress. Instead, they simply put out a sizable monetary bounty on the artifact, and figured that it would turn up eventually when someone wanted that money. It didn't, and for the next few years, the search for the golden stool went cold. That was until Hodgson's arrival. Hodgson, at first, was forced to similarly rely on a bounty to try to bring hints about the Golden Stool's whereabouts to no avail. But everything changed in December of 1899, when, without warning, Hodgson suddenly received an enormous lead that revitalized the British search for the stool. This lead came from a mysterious man, an Ashanti with a severe limp who claimed to have special knowledge on the whereabouts of the stool. He used multiple names when conversing with Hodgson, claiming at first to be a man named Kwasi Mensa, before changing his story and stating that his real name was Kwajuasuman, though he would continue to slip up often and refer to himself as Kwasi Asuman, implying that this name too was not genuine. In addition to his inconsistent name, it's not exactly very clear how the mysterious man possessed knowledge about the whereabouts of the Golden Stool in the first place. Sometimes, he would claim that he was one of the Insafohene trusted to act as a stool carrier, but this story seems unlikely, given how his severe limp would have limited his ability to carry heavy objects. A more likely story is that he heard about the stool's whereabouts from his uncle, who was purported to be a close associate of several of the stool's hiders. Now, given the sketchiness of his background, it would have been understandable for Hodgson to write Asaman off as an opportunistic liar. But there were some elements of the story that gave Hodgson pause. For starters, while Asaman did make overtures about a reward for his help in finding the stool, he strongly implied that he would only seek this reward after the stool's capture, a strange condition to add if he had been trying to scam the British with lies. Additionally, the mysterious Asaman did seem to possess an unusual degree of knowledge regarding the inner workings of Ashanti court life, and even correctly identified the names of several people who had taken the stool. So, it's clear that he wasn't pulling this stuff out of his butt, and he did have at least some genuine connection to the Ashanti royal government. So, despite the more suspicious elements of his story, Hodgson took Asaman seriously. Asaman concluded his meeting with Governor Hodgson with a short statement. The guardians of the stool and treasure are tired of their work, and are anxious to relinquish it, upon being assured of their personal safety and some substantial reward. With Asaman having convinced Hodgson of his own veracity, 
the governor organized a covert expedition to try and retrieve the golden stool. His personal secretary would travel with Asaman in search of the object. To protect the guide's safety and identity, Asaman was hidden in a closed quarantine hammock carried around by a pair of Hausa police officers, effectively disguising him as a sick policeman. This is a pretty strong plan, but the secret expedition turned into a debacle almost immediately. After guiding the British close to the spot that he alleged hid the golden stool, Asaman suddenly developed cold feet and refused to go any further, fearing that if he went too close to the golden stool, he would be caught and killed. When the British tried to force him to go anyways, Asaman suddenly jumped ship. During an intense rainstorm, he slipped away from the expedition and tried running south to Accra. However, the rainstorm bogged him down in a nearby village, where the locals recognized him and grew suspicious of what he was doing so far out in the countryside. From the Ashanti point of view, nobody had seen Asaman for weeks, only for him to suddenly show up in the middle of nowhere, just after a group of colonial police officers came poking around the area for no apparent reason or anything. After a brief interrogation, Asaman confessed that he had been helping the British look for the golden stool. The local Omanhene informed the stool's guardians of the approaching British policemen, and the stool was moved just before they arrived. It turned out that Asaman's claim that the stool guardians really wanted to give up the stool as soon as possible was far from true. This near miss of an attempt to capture the golden stool did not go unnoticed by the Ashanti. The clear revival of the British search for the object provoked immense outrage among the Ashanti populace. The British had already humiliated the Ashanti so much. They had reduced them to a protectorate, they had deported their king, and now they were trying to capture the Ashanti nation's most sacred possession and use it to eradicate any remaining pittance of autonomy that the Ashanti had left. Outrage towards the British administration would only intensify in the following months. Despite the public outcry, Hodgson actually ordered to intensify the search for the Golden Stool in the following months, with colonial police beginning to actively interrogate Ashanti officials over the location of the artifact. To make matters worse, Hodgson's administration also thought that this moment of tension would just be a great time to begin trying to collect the outstanding Ashanti debts. Not only Prempa's debts that had served as the justification for the 1896 invasion, but also the outstanding remainder of the 1874 war indemnity. This indemnity was itself exaggerated in its value, likely as an attempt by the colonial office to extract additional revenue to pay for the ongoing and increasingly expensive occupation of Ashantiman. On March 28th of 1900, Tensions finally reached a fever pitch. Hodgson, in an attempt to persuade the Ashanti to fully submit to British rule, traveled to Komasi where he delivered a lengthy speech. As he began to deliver the speech in front of the convened Ashanti Manshamu, hecklers from the audience began to rattle Hodgson's nerves. At first, his speech was quite inoffensive and even somewhat conciliatory. But as he became more unraveled and more nervous, Hodgson began to improvise. And in one of these improvised sections of his speech, Hodgson made two errors that would prove devastating. Standing before the Ashanti Manshamu, Hodgson recited, Your king, Prempa I, is in exile and will not return to Ashanti. His power and authority will be taken over by the representative of the Queen of Britain. The terms of the 1874 Peace Treaty of Fomena, which required you to pay the costs of the 1874 year, have not been forgotten you have to pay with interest the sum of £160,000 per year. Then there is the matter of the golden stool of Ashanti. 
The queen is entitled to the stool. She must receive it. Where is the golden stool? I am the representative of the paramount power. Why have you relegated me to this ordinary chair? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Komasi to bring the golden stool for me to sit upon? However, you may be quite sure that though the government has not received the golden stool at his hands, it will rule over you with the same impartiality and fairness as if you had produced it. In this speech, Hodgson made four glaring mistakes. First, he announced something that was not public knowledge at the time, that the British had no immediate intention of letting Prempa return. Many of the Omanhenes who had chosen to peacefully collaborate with British rule did so on the assumption that cooperation would be rewarded by allowing Prempa to come back to Ashantiman. By stating that Prempa wasn't coming back, Hodgson alienated these remaining allies, including the de facto leader of the Ashanti, Apokumensa. Next, he implied the Ashanti would be directly annexed into the British Empire as a crown colony, in which he, as the representative of the British government, would completely subsume the highest position of authority in the region, including the subsuming of the social and political role traditionally played by the Ashantahene himself. This was a blunder on two accounts. For starters, it was an enormous shift away from the British's old plan and still official policy of using the Golden Stool to appoint a puppet Ashantahene like Achwereboa. Second of all, Hodgson was basically saying that he was the new Ashantahene, an insult to the legitimacy of the Ashanti royal family. And finally, he capped this off with the biggest blunder of his speech, announcing an intention to sit on the Golden Stool. If you look online at less scrupulous and more popular summaries of the war, they will often repeat the claim that the crisis of the Golden Stool was the result of British ignorance of Ashanti customs, that Hodgson was simply unaware of the religious and political significance of the stool. Perhaps the best summation of this viewpoint comes from the word of a missionary and anthropologist who attributed the cause of the war as ignorance of the African mind on Hodgson's part. However, I disagree with this summation. Hodgson's personal letters and correspondence make it very clear that not only did he personally understand the significance of the stool very well, but that he never literally intended to sit on it at all. Throughout his private writings, Hodgson never once makes reference to any desire to sit on the stool, but does make many references of how he could use control of the revered artifact to coerce support from the elites of Ashantiman. He also wrote that, since the Golden Stool was a symbolic representation of the binding unity of the Ashanti nation, that British possession of the stool would surely erode Ashanti national consciousness. In fact, it is far more likely that the statement in his speech where he claims that he wants to sit on the stool was not a literal announcement of his intentions, but rather a rhetorical attempt to insult and belittle the Ashanti crowd, a way to state that, from now on, their institutions are powerless. As we'll see, the Ashanti response to Hodgson's speeds will not hinge entirely on the governor's supposed desire to sit on the golden stool, but rather the dismissive, disrespectful way he spoke, and the threats of ruling over Ashantiman directly. Had the Ashanti elites present taken Hodgson's stated desire to sit on the golden stool literally, it certainly would have featured prominently in their statements. But it didn't, implying that both the Ashanti and Hodgson were aware that this statement was not a declaration of his intentions, but rather a figurative middle finger to the Ashanti. To make matters even worse, Hodgson then ordered for his colonial police officers to further escalate the search for the Golden Stool. 
Finally, he added a timetable that the stool must be surrendered to him by the end of March. As Hodgson exited Komasi, Opokumensa convened a meeting of his own. With the governor having made his intentions clear, Opokumensa called for the organization of efforts to frustrate the governor's search. However, even after the day's shocking events, only a small handful of Omanhenes actually showed up. The vast majority of Ashanti elites were, by this point, well convinced that trying to resist the British was, by this time, pointless. Some had already hedged their bets on collaboration, and financially benefited from the new British regime. And even among the minority who chose to attend the meeting, there was still nothing among them resembling a united front against the British. While everyone who showed up was outraged by Hodgson's actions, and desired to keep the stool away from him, some of the present Omanhenes echoed the defeatism of those who had chosen not to attend. I mean, even Prempa himself had not bothered to resist the British invasion four years earlier, so clearly there was nothing they could do about it now. Even Apokumensa, the man who had called this meeting in the first place, was a moderate. During the meeting, he made it clear that he vastly preferred a non-violent method to end Hodgson's search, but he did concede that, should that not be possible, he preferred rebellion to capitulation. It was at this meeting when the figure you've been waiting for, possibly the single most famous figure in Ashanti history, emerges in our story. She is the only person to rival the first Ashantahene, Ose Tutu, in strength of historical legacy in Ashantiban. Her name, for which this episode is named, was Ya Ashantewa. Ya Ashantewa was born sometime between 1830 and 1840, with an exact date being unknown, meaning that she was likely in her early 60s when Apokomensa convened his council. Despite her larger-than-life historical reputation, in the year 1900, Ashantewa was a relatively obscure figure. Many pop history articles about Ya Ashantewa falsely claim that she was the queen mother of the Ashanti Empire. She wasn't. Rather, she was a member of a relatively minor noble family from the town of Ejueso, a mid-sized town located on the southeastern fringes of Greater Komasi. Now, this town of Ejueso had a bit of a history of problems with the various Ashantahenes. From 1800 until 1869, Seven different ruling men from the town had either been destooled, criminally charged, or executed for various alleged crimes against the Ashanti king. The town had a reputation of being something of a perpetual thorn in the side of the Ashanti government, commonly viewed as a harbor for insubordinate nobility and bureaucrats. Early in her adulthood, Ya Ashantewa actually showed little interest in politics, but still showcased the independent spirit for which she'd become known. Instead of politics, she chose to focus her efforts on her own economic enterprises. She purchased a piece of land in Boancra, a village that was pretty far away from her hometown, leaving every morning for work without saying a word to anyone before returning home late at night. This farm of hers proved quite profitable, and even expanded to become something of a major plantation. This role of planter was unusual for women in the setting of 19th century Ashantiman. While working-class Ashanti women typically engaged in daily labor similar to their male family members, the typical life of a noble Ashanti woman was to marry a wealthy husband and allow him to act as the breadwinner while she, as well as his potential other wives, spent most of their time dedicated to leisure activities and educating children. This should not be mistaken for a cult of domesticity, though. 
While noble women were utterly dependent on their husbands financially, they were not treated as property. They were encouraged and even expected to voice their opinions on key matters, as strong-minded, opinionated women were viewed as desirable by Ashanti courtship standards. Now, Ya Ashantewa did get married, to a vague descendant of the Ashantehene Osea Koto even. But what made Ya Ashantewa unusual was her desire for financial independence. It was in this period of her life where she, apocryphally, became the origin of the famous Ashanti proverb that, quote, men are not a pillow to lay your head on. Beyond her running of her personal plantation, however, little about Ashantewa's life at this point is known. There are an incredible number of folk histories and fables from this period that involve her, but verifying the authenticity of these histories is impossible, while many others are just straight up clearly products of her later fame. For example, it is often claimed that she was an ally of the working classes, and that she was generous with giving her small fortune to the poor and destitute while advising other Ashanti nobles to treat slaves and peons with relative kindness. Is it true? Well, we don't really know. The only verified statement she made on the matter is that, later in life, she would advise working-class Ashanti not to take major loans to avoid peonage. We also know that she was a slave owner, and used enslaved labor extensively on her plantation. The precise treatment she gave to these enslaved workers is unknown, but, well, slavery is slavery. As always, it's important to recognize that even the most revered and celebrated historical figures are human beings, products of their time and place, and often possessed morals that don't line up with ours today. That doesn't mean that we should lose interest in them or dismiss them entirely, but it is something to keep in mind. Anyways, the main reason why it's so hard to distinguish the veracity of this early period of Yashantewa's life is because she wouldn't get famous really until later. Her big break into Ashanti politics took place in the early 1880s. At this time, her brother was appointed as the new Omanhene of the always unstable region of Ajuisu. This was big news for Ashantewa, as, per Ashanti matrilineal inheritance customs, her son was now set to inherit the status of Ajuisuhene. She didn't yet have a son, her only child was a single daughter, but, well, I'm sure she'll have one with time. She and her brother's true breakthrough into Ashanti national politics, though, came with the onset of the Ashanti Civil War. Ashantewa and her brother were, from the very beginning, fierce supporters of Prempa. In fact, they were one of the only stools in southern Ashantiman to fight against the king of Bekwai during his war with Prempa, which earned the siblings great social clout with the eventually victorious Komasi clique. Throughout Prempa's administration, Ashantewa and her brother were among the Ashantehane's most trusted allies, granting them a new degree of prominence in Ashanti national politics. However, this close relationship with Prempa came back to bite them in 1896. When the British invaded Ashantiman and deposed Prempa, they also persecuted many of his closest allies. This included Ashantewa's brother, who was deposed from his status as Omanhene and sent into exile. The decision by the British to depose and exile Ashantewa's brother would become a decision for which the British would pay for dearly as it would plant the seed of a deep disdain for British rule within the previously moderate Queen Mother of Ajisu. Normally, this deposition would have resulted in Ashantewa's son becoming the next Ajisu Henry, except, wait a minute, she never actually had a son. Yeah, despite being the Queen Mother, Ya Ashantewa never produced a male heir. She also had no other living brothers. 
She was old enough, though, that she did, in fact, have a grandson, and a matrilineal grandson at that, but he was far too young to serve as Omanhene. A less extraordinary woman would have likely ceded power to a male cousin or nephew at this point, but that wasn't Ashantewa's style. Instead, she announced that she would hold down the Ejuisu's stool until her grandson was old enough to take over, becoming a historical rarity, a female Omanhene. So, when Opokumensa assembled the Ashante Manshamu, Ya Ashantewa was in the unique position of being both the Omanhene of Ejisu and the Queen Mother of Ejuisu, and was, as a result, invited. So, like all the other Omanhenes, received an invitation. And, at this meeting to decide the Ashanti response to the renewed search for the Golden Stool, Ashantewa left her mark as the most vocal leader of the radical faction. Opokumensa's Ashante Manchiamu was initially dominated by the moderates, including Opokumensa himself. The moderate faction believed that, while something had to be done to frustrate the British's efforts, that they should try to make an effort for a peaceful solution. There was no point in fighting a war that the Ashanti were doomed to lose anyway. A minority of the meeting disagreed, the radicals. The way that this radical faction viewed things Trying for a peaceful resolution with the British was even more pointless than fighting. Everyone had witnessed the way that Governor Hodgson was acting. From the previous governor to Hodgson, the colonial government had shifted from a stance of relatively light, mostly indirect rule over the Ashanti, to seeking to appoint a puppet as Ashantihene, to seeking to abolish the few remaining remnants of the Ashanti civic system altogether. There was a clear trend here. The British had grown less open to Ashanti autonomy over time. It was foolish to think that they would suddenly reverse course if the Omanhenes asked nicely. As the conference went on, the pro-war stance gradually began to take the moderates in popularity. The coup de grace came in the form of a speech by Ya Ashantewa herself, who, through her charismatic public speaking abilities, quickly ascended to become the de facto speaker on behalf of the radical faction. In her most famous speech from the conference, she reaffirmed the importance of the coming fight with the British, and challenged the masculinity of the men who were hesitant to join. How can a proud and brave people like the Ashanti sit back and look while white men took away their king and chiefs and humiliate them with a demand for the golden stool? The golden stool only means money to the white men. They have searched and dug everywhere for it. I shall not pay one bag of gold dust to the governor. In a perfect close to her speech, Ashantewa snatched a rifle out of the hand of a nearby man and fired it into the air. If you, the nobles of Ashanti, are going to behave like cowards and not fight, you should exchange your kilt for my undergarments. Not every man at the Ashanti Manshamu was convinced, but enough, including Opokumensa, were. In 1900, Ya Ashantewa and her followers would initiate the fifth and final Anglo-Ashanti War, the War for the Golden Stool. Join us next episode to see the shocking, climactic struggle between the British and Ashanti, and see if we can figure out who actually won this peculiar conflict. So, before we head out, I thought you might be interested in learning where we're going next season. And I wish I could tell you, normally this would be the time of year when I announce where season 4 is headed, but the problem is, the poll on the Patreon is actually a bit too close to call right now. 
Marina, which is an empire in Madagascar during the early modern period, is slightly leading uh, by just a couple votes over the second most popular option, which is Kilwa, a maritime empire from the medieval and early modern Swahili area. And so, you know, you might, if you find Kilwa more interesting, you might want to go ahead onto the poll and, you know, vote for Kilwa. Or if you want, you know, you really want to make sure that Marina wins because you just think that's really, really interesting, you can go and vote for Marina. Also, uh, Great Zimbabwe and Mutapa, which are, you know, the famous stone city building civilizations of Zimbabwe, they aren't so far behind. Like, they could still realistically come back and win it. So if that's something that you want to hear about on the show then please go to patreon.com slash historyofafrica and support the show and vote on the poll. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could help support the show. You can do this by supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode, like all others, is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sebalabie, Diz R.H., Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwokocha, Joe Maxwell, and Nkechi Nwabudike, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.